Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. This is another episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. So this week we're taking on the issue of all issues. Truly is. We're talking about China, whether it's a threat. And if it is a threat, what we should do about it. So uh, Batya, who, who are we about to hear from? We're going to hear from Kishore Mabubani and Gordon Chang. We're super excited to hear them take on this topic. I know, Josh, you feel very strongly about this topic. I feel very strongly about this topic. So we're excited for this one. We really are. Um, you know, at Newsweek Opinion, we run a lot of Chinese Communist Party skeptical content, I think would be a fair way of describing our opinion section. It's not that common that we truly get an earnest debate from someone who's going to take um, a, a an effective, uh, unapologetically really pro-China line. So I think we're in for some fireworks here. It should be a really good one. But before we get to Gordon and Kishore, I just want to give a very quick word for our sponsors. Um, our sponsor is Herzog Wine. You can find them at HerzogWine.com. We're grateful for them sponsoring the podcast. You can go to HerzogWine.com and start your own wine adventure. So we're going to take a very quick break here. And on the other side... We will have Gordon and Kishore debating China. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to another episode of Newsweek's The Debate. This week, we're debating China. What is its role in the world? What is its relationship to the West? And how should the United States and its allies deal with the Chinese threat or potentially lack thereof? So, uh, Badia, who are we going to hear from today? We're so excited to have Kishore Mabubani, who was a diplomat for Singapore for 33 years and is now an academic, and Gordon Chang, a Newsweek contributor and author of The Coming Collapse of China. Kishore, Gordon, welcome to the debate. Thank you, Badia. Thank you. So thank you guys both so much for joining us. So from my vantage point, this is the issue of all issues. Um, I, I, I kind of feel silly that it's taken us this long to get to this on, on, on our podcast, which has only been up for a few months now. I think this is the most important issue of our generation, of our era, um, probably of this entire century. Um, so let's kind of just give you each kind of just two, uh, roughly two minutes or so just to kind of uh, basically just state kind of like a high level overview of what your thoughts are with respect to China and the role it plays um, with respect to the, the United States, Western civilization, how big of a threat it is and what we can do or what should we be doing to integrate it, combat it, and so forth. So, um, Gordon, let's start with you. The floor is yours. I believe that China is a threat to the United States and to the international community. And I also believe it's more than just a competitor, as President Biden has said, and it's more than just an adversary. It's actually our enemy. And we don't need to speculate about that, because in May 2019, People's Daily, the most authoritative publication in China, declared a quote-unquote people's war on the U.S. And we know that China's tactics on us, and that's, just, that's more than just rhetoric, um, we know that the tactics against us have been malicious, and they have pursued them relentlessly. So, for instance, we know that last year, and perhaps the beginning of this year, that China was inciting violence on American streets with the purpose of overthrowing our government. That's more than just subversion. 
that's an act of war. We have seen perhaps China actually uh, organize demonstrators on American streets. There's credible evidence of that, especially May 31st, uh, one block north of the White House, the day, the night that St. John's Church was burned. But in any event, we know that China um, has been malicious. They're accusing the U.S. of being of starting COVID-19. Um, and this has been a constant propaganda theme of China's. We know that China steals hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. intellectual, intellectual property each year. We just go down the list. Um, China is attempting to take down our government. And we've got to understand that our policies have got to be reciprocal. We need to treat China the way it treats us. Kishore? Well, uh, China has been around for 5,000 years. The United States has been around for 250 years. <laughs> and it's not surprising that a juvenile like the United States uh, would have difficulty dealing with a wiser and older civilization. So the troubles, troubles that the United States is having in dealing with China are perfectly understandable. Because what the United States doesn't understand uh, is the longer arc of human history. And talking of history, there's a British historian called Angus Madison who has pointed out that if you look at the longer history of the world over the past 2,000 years of human history, the two largest economies of the world have always been those of China and India. So it's only in the last 200 years that the West took off, or Europe took off in the 19th century, North America took off in the 20th century. So the past 200 years of world history have been a major historical aberration. And all aberrations come to a natural end. So it's perfectly natural to see the West retreat to its normal share of global GNP. And there are some things in history, the longer arc of human history, therefore cannot be stopped. And so the return of China and subsequently India, these are perfectly natural developments. And of course, it's perfectly natural, therefore, for the United States, which has got used to being number one for about 130 years since the replaced the British as the number one power around the 1890s. It's quite natural for Americans to feel a sense of entitlement that they should always be number one uh, in the world. And this is, of course, as I point out in my book, as China won, which you can see behind my shoulder, that actually what the United States lacks in dealing with China is a comprehensive long-term strategy, which is what you need to deal with one of the oldest civilizations on planet Earth. And this insight actually was given to me by Henry Kissinger, and I cite him in my book with his uh, permission. And that's so tragic, because the reason why it's such a tragic is because Gordon is completely wrong, <laughs> as usual. And China doesn't threaten the United States. Uh, China is not mounting a military invasion uh, of the United States. China is not sending troops to the U.S. border. China is not sending naval ships close to the United States. 
and China is not even threatening. And this is this is the most important point for Americans to learn. China is not threatening uh, American prosperity because American middle class prosperity has been the main engine of China's economic growth. And so if the Chinese destroy American middle class prosperity, they're actually destroying the main engine of China's economic growth. And the older civilization in the world is not a stupid civilization. It understands that actually American prosperity is a gift to the world and a gift uh, to China. And in this new world that is, that is emerging, paradoxically, the West, including the United States, created a rules-based order based on the United Nations system, a system I know well because I was ambassador to the UN for over 10 years. And that rules-based order created by the West, created by the United States, is a gift to China. And China wants to preserve it and protect it. So the paradox about the world today we have is that even though the global rules-based order is a gift of the West, China embraces it, and therefore, to put it simply, China is not a threat to the West. <laughs> so a lot there to respond to, Gordon. I definitely don't want to steal any thunder from you, so um, go right ahead. Dive in wherever you want to go, and, and then feel free to respond to many of Kishore's points. Well, as an initial matter, I don't accept his um, description of American motivations and attitudes. America wants to have a good relationship with China, as we do with other countries. It's just that China has made that extremely difficult, especially in recent years. You know, Kishore describes an attitude that China's regime should have. They should understand that the rules-based international system is something that they um, benefit from. But in fact, they don't. And recently, we've even heard from the Chinese foreign ministry, especially at the end of last month, that they reject the rules-based international order. They say it's so-called, and they say it's the U.S. version of the law of the jungle. Um, so unfortunately, they don't accept it. You know, and we've heard from Xi Jinping and from his officials that they believe that the current Westphalian international order is no longer appropriate, that it should be replaced. They talk about... Uh, Tensha, or all under heaven, referring to the ideology of two millennia of Chinese emperors that talked about the mandate of heaven over Tensha, that they not only had the right to rule all under heaven, but in fact, heaven compelled them to do so. Now, of course, they didn't, but that's their ideology. And that's what Xi Jinping and his uh, officials are now talking about. So they don't want to um, compete with the U.S. in the international system. They don't even want to adjust that system to be more to China's liking. In fact, they want to overthrow it altogether. And, and we should listen to what Chinese officials say, because that is the best indication of what they're thinking. You know, in terms of what China's doing, um, yes, China does benefit from the um, American market. But no, they, they are trying to uh, in, compete with us in ways which are destructive. So I mentioned the theft of U.S. intellectual property. It's, it's a grievous wound on the United States. Um, and I believe that uh, if we were competing with China in a fair way, um, we'd be much better off than we are now. And I think the United States has, in fact, been hurt. 
Um, yes, goods are cheaper, but a lot of Americans are not employed. That has led to despair. That has led to all sorts of issues. And more important, let's just talk about uh, the disease. In December 2019 and January 2020, um, Xi Jinping took steps to deliberately spread this disease beyond China's borders. Um, while he was locking down his own country, he was um, forcing other countries, including the U.S., not to impose travel restrictions and quarantines. And at the same time, he was lying about transmissibility of the disease for at least five weeks. And if you believe the Harvard Medical School study, then maybe even for five months, they knew this disease was highly transmissible human to human, but they were telling the world it was not. You put those two things together, and there are other things, but you put those two things together, it means that China deliberately spread this disease beyond its borders. And as of today, we're talking 625,000 Americans have been killed by a disease which should have been confined to central China. So yes, Kishore, I agree with you what China should want, but we have to look at what China is actually doing. So Kishore, I, I guess I, I specifically have two follow-up questions to um, your opener there. One is, you talked about how China is a 5,000-year-old civilization, how it's um, wiser in many ways. I, I guess my question on that front would be, surely there's, a, surely there's a distinction to be made here between kind of ancient Chinese wisdom, like the Confucius's of the world, um, Sun Tzu, the military generals, all, all, all of that great kind of, you know, a, truly ancient BC stuff and the modern Chinese Communist Party. So that would be my first question. The second one would be you're talking about kind of um, China and India trying to reassert itself. Well, surely, there, surely there's, a, there's a distinction to be made there as well, right? Vis-a-vis -vis American and Western security interests. Surely there's a distinction to be made between kind of the tactical and geopolitical importance of the India line specifically compared with kind of the broader all-encompassing nature of all that China entails. So I would like you to respond to those two points. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Very good points. Uh, uh, let me respond to two points of Gordon and two points of you, Josh. Uh, uh, on first point on intellectual property, uh, Gordon is right. Uh, every great economy, when it starts taking off, steals intellectual property. And exhibit A, of course, is the United States of America. <laughs> because if you read an article by Robert Hometz, uh, a former assistant secretary of commerce, uh, in the Harvard Business Review, it's a brilliant article. He points out that in the early years, when the United States was about to take off, the only way the United States could take off, of course, is to steal intellectual property from uh, the British. And the Americans did it beautifully and succeeded. But of course, every society comes to a point when it succeeds enough, when it starts producing intellectual property of its own, then it stops stealing because, you know, the, I got more intellectual property to protect. And so the United States went from being the greatest theft of intellectual property to becoming the greatest defender of intellectual property and China is also switching now from being the greatest theft of intellectual property to becoming the greatest defender of intellectual property. This is a normal historical evolution. The second point on COVID-19, I would say look at the article by Richard Horton, the editor of the Lancet magazine. And he points out that in the third week of January or fourth week of January 2020, the Lancet published five articles, okay? okay, assuming that China didn't warn the world, The Lancet published five articles pointing out that COVID-19 has emerged. It's a very dangerous uh, virus. 
uh, it requires protection, build up your PPEs, start wearing masks. And Richard Orton, the editor of The Lancet, it's a British magazine, said that all the warnings were given and the warnings were ignored. So even if you say that China didn't warn the world, the fact of the matter is that both Europe and the United States were given warnings at the end of January and they didn't listen to the warnings. And here, this is where, frankly, when I talk about the longer arc of history, Western civilization has gone from being competent to becoming incompetent, which is a natural cycle of civilization. So it showed that in COVID-19. And it's, you know, if you are incompetent, please don't blame somebody else. You know, it's good to look in the mirror and say, did I do something uh, wrong? Now, on your two other points about ancient Chinese wisdom and the modern Chinese uh, Communist Party, actually, if you look at China's behavior today, what, a lot of what China is doing follows a lot of what China, old Chinese uh, precepts. And, you know, ask yourself a very simple question. You know, there are five permanent members of the UN Security Council United States, Russia, UK, France, China. These are the five, quote-unquote, official great powers of the world. Of these five, only one hasn't fought a war in 40 years, which is that one power, China. Of these five, not, only one hasn't fired a bullet okay, uh, in 30 years in a cross-border conflict, and that's China. And, 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 you know, that's why in my book, Has China Won?, I have a chapter called, Is China Expansionist? And, of course, Americans believe that China is emerging as an expansionist, militaristic power. Now, if it is emerging as an expansionist, militaristic power, the first thing you should do is go out and conquer territories and declare wars and and do exactly what the United States did in the 1890s. And that's why, you know, Graham Allison, as you know, who wrote a book called Destined for War on the Thucydides trap and all that. And Graham Allison says, this is a Harvard professor, okay? <laughs> that Americans keep wishing, why can't China be like us? He says, oh, please don't wish that. Graham Allison, the Harvard professor says, because if you wish that China be like America, then when America emerged as a great power, what it did was to declare wars, conquer territories, and that's how Philippines, a country on the other side of the world, became an American colony. Because America as a great power says, I'm number one, I can conquer territories. And believe me, I can assure you one thing, China is not going to conquer any territories. And why that is the case? It's because they understand something more fundamental. That the best way to use exercise power is not to use force. And you cited Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu said a very important thing. He said the best way to win a battle is by not fighting it. And so in contrast to the United States, which has dropped hundreds of thousands of bombs over the last 20 years on, I don't know, how many countries killed over 800,000 people. The Chinese haven't dropped a single bomb over the last 20 years. 
And so that's, that's the big contrast. And, and, and that reflects the ancient Chinese strategic wisdom. Now, you're absolutely right, Josh, to point out to the difference between China and India. And I want to emphasize, I'm ethnically Indian, not ethnically Chinese. Uh, and I represent Indian civilization and not Chinese civilization uh, in this conversation. And, and India will also emerge as a great power, you're absolutely right, but in a very different way. Because the Indian psyche is very different uh, from the Chinese psyche. So if Chinese civilization is a very homogeneous civilization, and, and that's why the Chinese don't, don't, don't try, are not trying to universalize Chinese civilization, because they have the view that only Chinese can be Chinese. Whereas the Indians are much more cosmopolitan, much more open, much more diverse. Uh, and therefore, when India comes back again, and I think by 2050, the ranking order of the world probably be India will be number one, China will be number two, and United States will be number three. But when India becomes number one, it will have a very different civilization, successful civilization from the one that either the uh, Chinese have or that the United States has. Gore and I could visibly see you shaking your head there. So let's give you a chance to respond to what you want to pick up on. Then we're going to take it to a quick commercial break. Well, Kishore talks about being the representative of Indian civilization. And he says that China is not expansionist and it hasn't fired a shot. Well, um, May of last year, Chinese troops in force moved below the line of actual control in Ladakh. In other words, into Indian controlled territory. And on the night of June 15th, in a surprise attack, they killed 20 Indian soldiers. And afterwards, they killed another Indian soldier. At this moment, China is encroaching on India's Sikkim. And to this general point of China not being expansionist, it's encroached on Nepal, which is a friend. It has claims on Japan, um, the Senkaku Islands, which the Chinese call the Dalyus. And, and Chinese officials are making uh, preparations to claim the Ryukyu chain. Um, we have China's claims to about 85% of the South China Sea. Um, China claims Aido Rock of South Korea. Uh, Chinese officials are talking quietly about how um, Vladivostok and a lot of the Russian Far East should really be China's. Um, and in addition, Chinese officials talk about Tianxia. So I don't see how you can say that China is not expansionist. It is expansionist, and we've got to recognize that. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the world who make the arguments that Kishore makes, but they're not grounded on the facts. So let's get to a quick commercial break here. Again, you're listening to Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. This week, we are debating the Chinese threat or lack thereof. Uh, so stay with us. Again, this is Newsweek's The Debate. We'll be right back. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Our guests this week are Kishore Mabubani and Gordon Chang, and we're talking about China. 
what should our approach be to China? Is China an enemy or a friend? Um, so, Kishore, um, you have said in the past that the whole definition of a diplomat is someone who can tell you to go to hell in such a way that you feel you're going to enjoy the journey. And I feel a little bit of that happening here right now. I have to ask you, um, you know, Hong Kong protesters being prosecuted and jailed, the closing of Hong Kong's free press, the arrest of dissidents, the mass internment and forced sterilization of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. How can reconciliation, how can positive feelings, how can that be the way for the U.S. to deal with a country that's willing to do these sorts of things, a country over which we have actually a lot of leverage? First, uh, a quick response to Gordon. Okay, What I like about the English language is its precision. And I said that China hasn't fired a bullet in 30 years. Gordon is right. Indian soldiers were killed at the China-India border. Guess what? They were killed with fists and wooden clubs. And the reason why the Indian soldiers and Chinese soldiers were killed with fists and wooden clubs is because China and India signed an agreement that said, we will never fire a bullet at each other. So when I say that China hasn't fired a bullet in 30 years, that's factually Correct. And that's why the precision of the English language is such a beautiful thing. Uh, on, now, on Hong Kong, you know, if you look at my book as China One, uh, Hong Kong, as you know, is Chinese territory. And it was taken over by the British uh, during the Opium War. Uh, and it was taken over by the British uh, in the Opium War because the Chinese at that time unwisely refused to accept British opium in return for Chinese tea. The Chinese thought it was very unreasonable to make the Chinese imbibe opium. And they, the Chinese, in fact, wrote a letter uh, to the monarch and the British monarch and say, hey, don't please don't send opium to us. It's bad for the Chinese people. But the British people said, no, we want your tea, take our opium. When the Chinese refused, that's how Hong Kong was seized. And of course, at some point in time, Hong Kong had to return back to China. And the, the interesting story you should all know is that in 1961, President John F. Kennedy and Prime Minister Harold Macmillan wrote a letter to the most Anglophile Prime Minister in the world, the Indian Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, and say, we understand you're going to invade the Portuguese colony of Goa. Don't invade Goa. You know, go, leave Goa for the Portuguese. Now, that's unreasonable. Goa is a colony. The, e the Western colonial era was ending. And so Jawaharlal Nehru did the right thing. He ignored the appeals from John F. Kennedy and Harold Macmillan, and he took back Goa. And so when China takes back Hong Kong, it is basically trying to remedy a major historical injustice. And it's important to understand that Hong Kong doesn't belong to the West, doesn't belong to the United States of America, doesn't belong to the United States. It is Chinese territory. Now, you're absolutely right. 
that there are issues and challenges uh, in Hong Kong. And one of the issues and challenges is how you maintain order. Now, I actually, I, I was happened to be in the US uh, during the 2016 uh, elections when Donald Trump was elected. And there was so much anger among the Democrats uh, over the fact that Russian money they perceive was coming in to support Donald Trump. And, and, it's, and the Democrats were absolutely right. There should be no foreign money coming in to interfere with domestic elections and domestic politics. And guess what? That's exactly what happened in Hong Kong. And a lot of the violence that took place in Hong Kong was foreign funded, foreign money. Right. No. But even so, I mean, specifically, I, I just want to push back a little bit. Like I, to me, I, the question is not necessarily, you know, who the question of sovereignty. I'm asking specifically about civil rights abuses and human rights abuses that China is perpetrating against people that in some cases in Xinjiang are citizens, in some cases it perceives to be. So that question of the human rights abuses and the civil rights abuses, like why shouldn't that color our approach to China and how we see China in your view? Well, you know, Nancy Pelosi said, if I'm right, when the demonstrators took over the Legislative Assembly of Hong Kong, she, apparently she said, this is a beautiful sight to behold. Now, it is okay to have peaceful demonstrations. It's wrong to have violent demonstrations. And the United States experienced that on January 6, 2021. And how did Nancy Pelosi react when the violent demonstrators took over the United States Congress? Right? You reacted with horror. And you had to because that's not how democracy is supposed to work. You're not supposed to use violence. I personally was in Hong Kong. I saw the violent demonstrations. Now, I would make a distinction, therefore, between peaceful demonstrations and violent demonstrations. And let me add a very important historical fact. Under the agreement that was reached between the United Kingdom and China, signed by both sides in the basic law, there was an agreement that there should be a national security law passed. That was never passed. And, and that is one of the reasons why you had so much in Hong Kong. So what, you, what you're seeing now in Hong Kong is a kind of rebalancing that has taken place. Now, I agree with you that if China comes down very hard and really tramples human rights and civil rights in Hong Kong, Hong Kong will die. I completely agree with you. And therefore, if Hong Kong dies, you are right. If Hong Kong doesn't die, I'm right. And, and what about the Uyghurs? Can you specifically respond to that before I give it back to Gordon to respond? Well, I, I think you should read my book. Uh, I tell you why, because it's such a... For people complex- who don't have the time to read your book and listeners of the podcast, like, can you directly address Badia's question yeah. about the <laughs> yes, genocide the, of the Uyghurs? The, the, as you know, the trouble with podcasts is the difficulty of complexity. And I, what I say in my book is that if you look at the last, let's say, 20 years... Which country 
has killed more innocent Muslim civilians in the world. Okay, but let's before we get to what aboutism here, let's let's get you squarely to not avoid the question here. Is there or is there not genocide against the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province? Absolutely not avoiding the question. It sounds to me like you are, sir. No, no, absolutely not. It shows you're not capable of listening, George. Well, then answer the question, Kishore. It's a, it's, it's a yes or no question. Is there genocide against the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province? If you accuse China of genocide, which is what Australia has done, or maybe not Canada has done, the Dutch parliament has done, genocide is a factual point. Just as I talk about the precision of the English language, when it comes to using of bullets, genocide means at least hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in a genocide. The West alleges that there has been genocide in Xinjiang. All the factual evidence I have seen shows that while China has cracked down very hard on what it believes to be whatever it is extremist terrorist uh, forces, there has been no evidence of genocide in Xinjiang. Point number one. Point number two, and this is a very important point for you to know, between 9-11 and now 20 years, the number of innocent Muslim civilians, and this is backed by the Brown University Watson Institute, I think, of Peace and Studies or something, 800,000 innocent Muslims have been killed in wars that have in one way or another involved the United States. So look at the evidence, okay? And if the evidence shows that there's no genocide in Xinjiang, and the evidence shows that 800,000 innocent Muslims have been killed, which is the more pressing human rights problem? Okay, we're, uh, sir, with, 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 yes, all, with all due respect, no, no. we're not debating the United no, States foreign policy here. Please, you wanted me to answer the question? You're not answering the question, though. We're not, just, we're not debating United States foreign policy. We're not debating the drone strike of Anwar al awlaki in Yemen in 2011. And this is completely extraneous to the podcast. Um, Gordon, um, let's give you a chance to hop in here. Um, specifically, I would love for you to address kind of the Uyghur genocide point. I will, Josh. But first of all, let me address something that Kishore talked about in terms of Hong Kong. He said that Nancy Pelosi looked at the takeover of the Legislative Council and said, what a beautiful sight. That is China's Communist Party propaganda. It is clear that Nancy Pelosi said, what a beautiful sight, when she was referring to a image of people in Victoria Park commemorating uh, June 4th. She was not referring to the Legislative Council uh, takeover. Also, you know, with regard to Hong Kong, let's remember what we're talking about here. China agreed to the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984, and then it has repudiated it. Um, so we're talking about uh, China's international behavior. You know, all that Kishore talks about in the past may or may not be true. I think that there is a big question about his interpretation of a number of events that he's talked about. But the point is, in the here and now, China has uh, abrogated its international obligations with regard to Hong Kong. On the Uyghurs, genocide is defined in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention of 1948. And most people who have looked at this believe that China has indeed committed genocide pursuant to that provision. 
We know that China has detained at least 1.1 million, maybe 3.3 million in facilities that meet the definition of concentration camps. We know that people are dying in those camps because China is building crematoria next to them. We know that people are being tortured in those camps. We know that there is institutionalized rape. We know that there is forced organ harvesting. That's the tribunal that was conducted by Sir Jeffrey Nice. We also know that there is institutionalized slavery, that China has been selling Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other Turkic minorities to both foreign and domestic companies. Um, and basically, this is more than just forced labor. This is slavery. This is genocide and crimes against humanity. You know, Kishore can talk about all sorts of extraneous things, but the point is, China is in fact doing these horrific acts. Yeah, I have to say, as the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, I look at what's happening in China, and I actually, it, it seems so familiar to me, and so it very much colors how I see it. I purposely didn't use the word genocide because I don't, when I ask the questions, I don't know that it's so important to get hung up on the terminology, although um, I, I do sort of, I, I look at what's happening there, and I feel, you know, <laughs> from my own personal story, this sort of need to speak up about it. Um, but Kishore, let me let, let me um, shift a little bit. So you wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times called Biden should summer the courage to reverse course on China. And you argue that a Cold War style strategy will never work because the lives of individual Chinese citizens are so much better, not only than life under the Soviet Union, but than life in China 40 years ago. Make that argument for us. I'd also love for you specifically to address this question of, you know, which Chinese citizens' lives are better, right? Obviously, if you're a student in Hong Kong or a Uyghur Muslim, God forbid, your lives are not probably much better. Um, and also, unlike the Soviet Union, China's economy is very heavily bound up with ours, very deeply invested in ours. So to me, those would seem like two counterpoints to your argument. But so, so, so make the argument for us and then address those points. Thank you. You know, I, I'm glad that uh, Gordon referred to international opinion. And as you know, if I'm not mistaken, the is it the U.S. Declaration of Independence that says that you must show a decent respect for the opinions of mankind? And I just want to make a very simple point that the views I'm expressing actually respect the opinions of mankind, uh, respect the views of the you know, there are 7.8 billion people in the world, 12% live in the West, 88% live outside the West. And I think if your listeners want to get a sense, want to show a decent respect for the opinions of mankind, of how the 88% in the rest of the world is thinking about many of the issues of disgust, uh, let me humbly say to you that what I say and what I describe uh, reflects the view, and therefore the the it's the Western view that is narrow and isolated and opinionated and out of touch with the world. I mean, just I'm just making a factual point here. And when it comes to dealing with the uh, condition of the Chinese people in the uh, Financial Times article that you pointed out. Uh, again, it's not me, by the way. It's United Nations Studies. Uh, United Nations, by the way, is the only universal organization in the world that rep that represents the views of 7.8 billion people. I know the United States wants to dismiss the United Nations, but, you know, the 193 countries in the world, most countries respect the United Nations and respect UN studies, which show 
that the, the poverty reduction exercise that China has carried out has been the most impressive poverty reduction exercise ever seen uh, in human history. And, you know, I want you, since you mentioned that you were a descendant of Holocaust survivors, uh, I should mention that uh, when I was six years old, I was put in a special feeding program because when I went to school, they said to me, you're technically undernourished. So I had to go to the principal's office every morning and there was one huge pail of milk and with just one ladle, without changing the ladle, the 15 boys who were undernourished were then given fat from the ladle of milk. And it's not surprising because Singapore's per capita income when we became independent was the same as Ghana in Africa was $500. I didn't have a flush toilet. My father went to jail. Uh, I saw gangsters fighting uh, in my doorstep, uh, stabbing each other. So I've lived through third world poverty. So when I describe and talk about how the greatest liberation that any human being can experience is liberation from poverty, uh, I speak from deep personal experience. And so I'm very heartened that there were 800 million Chinese who were probably as poor as I was uh, when I was a child and who have escaped from poverty. And I think it's, it's so sad that if you, I mean, you can disagree with China on its ideology, you can disagree with China on its political system, and I, by the way, let me add, I would prefer to live in the uh, democratically elected uh, system of Singapore, and I wouldn't want to live in China. Certainly not. That's not my choice. But whatever, whatever my differences with China politically, I have to acknowledge that they have actually rescued 800 million people from poverty. And believe me, if you haven't experienced poverty, you have no idea how debilitating it is to your body and spirit and soul. And so when the Chinese have made this major accomplishment, the least you can do is acknowledge it and say, hey, they have done some things right. So Gordon, to you, I, I want you to respond to that specifically. Um, you know, you wrote a book called The Coming Collapse of China. Uh, do you still believe that China is approaching collapse? So many people seem to be telling us the opposite, what Kishore is saying, that China is the next superpower, that it's going to replace us. And specifically, you know, China's middle class is so enormous now. Uh, there is so much social mobility, arguably more social mobility in China than there is here. Is there anything we can learn from that? Um, to you, Gordon. Well, first of all, um, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan were as destitute as China was. Um, Japan even more so. And yet they've come a lot further than China has. And China, in terms of its um, poverty alleviation, uh, alleviation, let's remember how many Chinese people were killed by the Communist Party. Uh, in the Great Leap Forward alone, you're talking somewhere between 30 and 70 million people. Take your pick. But there was also about five or so million deaths when Mao Zedong took over in 1949. You have about 5 million deaths during the Cultural Revolution. And the question is, those other countries, um, they accomplished more than China, and they didn't have the mass killings. 
So I think that we need to put that into perspective. You know, in terms of poverty, yes, I agree with you. Um, but the question is, how is that done? And it was done largely because the Chinese people forced the Communist Party to not stand in their way anymore. This occurred um, in 1978 when um, people started to see that Deng Xiaoping, a quote-unquote reformer, was taking over. But Deng was actually continuing a lot of the old uh, Communist Party tactics of coercive control over the economy. Um, and the Chinese people said, no, we're just not doing it. They did it on their own. They ignored Communist Party mandates, and the Communist Party actually had to follow them. So I don't think it was the Chinese Communist Party that has alleviated this mm -hmm. poverty. It's the Chinese people themselves demanding that the party get out of the way. And what we've seen recently um, with Xi Jinping's initiatives, um, $1.3 trillion of value of Chinese companies have been uh, knocked off in the space of, what, seven or eight weeks. This is an anti-business anti-poverty alleviation um, regime. You know, in terms of the coming collapse of China, I wrote a book, 2001, where I predicted that the Communist Party would fall in 10 years. Um, I guess I'm wrong. Um, I, there's a number of things I didn't foresee, um, but I was wrong. But I do think that the party right now is facing internal weaknesses um, that will lead to a very different type of China. You know, Kishore talks about India, and I agree with them. India could very well be the world's superpower by the middle of the century. Maybe yes, maybe no. But the point is, we know that China won't be. And we know for one very simple reason. And that is that China today, which has a population of 1.41 billion people, according to the seventh national census that was conducted last November and December, at the end of this century, will be no more than a billion people, even according to China's own estimates, which overstate China's demographic potential. Um, China probably will have a population of maybe 500 million if it's lucky. In other words, they're going to suffer the biggest demographic decline in history in the absence of war or disease. And this has been self-inflicted. Um, I don't see how China can maintain any sort of superpower status when its population is falling so drastically. But China's got other problems. Um, last year, it became very evident that the country couldn't feed itself. It had a food crisis. This year is much worse. We're seeing this in the import numbers of grain. Um, and uh, when we look forward, China is going to be even less self-sufficient in food. It's got an environment that is on the point of exhaustion. You know, we talk about the, the extreme flooding in the central part of the country, but the big issue there is scarcity of water. It has not been able to control COVID-19. This most, out, most recent outbreak of the Delta variant, which started July 20, according to Beijing, is now spread across the country, hit major cities, including Beijing. I don't think China will be able to fully recover from this. And we have seen a Chinese economy that from many signs, not from what the Bureau, National Bureau of Statistics says, but from many signs, has not been able to recover from the post-COVID, from the pre-COVID period. So you put all those things together, China faces these problems all at once. It's not just one problem at a time. And I think that especially with a more provocative China, which is losing support around the world, it'll be very difficult for the Communist Party to be able to um, recover the situation. I could be wrong. I was wrong in the past. Um, but nonetheless, we do see critical vulnerabilities in China. And the issue is, can the Communist Party deal with them all at the same time?
So one quick follow-up, Gordon, and then we'll take it to a break. Um, I'm wondering if what is your sort of upper limit for hawkishness in terms of policy towards China? Is there anything you would consider to be too aggressive in terms of the U.S. response to what you have called an enemy? Yeah, basically the uh, unprovoked use of force. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that we have to start treating China like it treats us. We should be adopting the principle of reciprocity. China exploits all points of contact with our society. So until we can figure out whether we can manage this, we're going to have to remove those points of contact. This is unfortunate. This is drastic. But nonetheless, I believe that we could lose our country. So we're going to have to rethink the China relationship from the bottom up. We have to take a quick break. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast, and we will be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. This week, we're discussing all things China-related. So I want to touch here in our kind of closing segment on something that we've already touched on a little bit, but I want, I want to tease out just a little more here. So China obviously has been on the minds of um, the American public, the Western public in general, for a very long time now. But I think in the COVID-19 era, obviously, that's really only been accentuated here. So let's kind of let's drill down into kind of kind of brass tacks vis-a-vis COVID-19 in particular here. Um, so, um, Kishore, let's start with you and then we'll go to Gordon here. I'm wondering if you could kind of just walk us through how you perceive um, Chinese culpability or lack thereof in COVID-19. And based on how you answer that question, then what, if anything, the U.S. and our allies should do to respond to China and make them pay or not pay for COVID-19? Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, just a quick response to a point that uh, Gordon just made. Uh, you know, there's the, a the beautiful English word called paradox. Uh, and, you know, as a student of philosophy, I love that word. In, in theory, Gordon is, of course, defending American interests and attacking Chinese interests. In practice, the paradox is this. Gordon may be helping Chinese interests and undermining American interests because if he makes Americans believe that China is about to collapse, then frankly, why bother with China? It's going to collapse. Sit back, relax, enjoy the show. But if I'm right, (laughs) and in that sense, I think I'm a better friend of America. If I am right, and so far in my 30 years of writing about the return of Asia, in my eight books, I've been, please go back and read my eight books. All my predictions have come true. China will become stronger than the United States within 10 years. If you listen to Gordon, you let down your guard. You say, don't worry, China's going to collapse. If you listen to me, you say, hey, be careful. We're going to deal with a power that is going to become much stronger than us. 
So I want to emphasize, I'm actually a friend of the United States. I'm trying to help the United States deal with an uncomfortable, uncomfortable reality that is coming rather than to engage in wishful thinking, which is the most dangerous thing in international affairs. Now on COVID-19, the biggest uh, thing that China has done with COVID-19, and I completely agree with you, Josh, that in the initial few weeks, China was stumbling, having difficulty figuring out what the hell was happening, and they didn't tell the world what was happening. You're absolutely right in all that. But when the China finally got its act together, it did an amazing job in stopping COVID-19 in China. And you know, if you look at you know, if you look at the article I published in The Economist, you look at the number of deaths per million, right, from COVID-19. In, the, in China, I think it's about five or 10 or whatever it is. And United States is about 2,000, most Western European countries, 2,000 per million. Now, so I would say that there are areas where we need to exercise humility. And if there's one area we need to learn from China, it is how to manage a pandemic. Because they have actually done a remarkable job in stopping its spread. Now, they haven't done a perfect job, but they still have done a remarkable job. But the more important question is this. See, COVID-19, the world can actually save, uh, prevent us from having the worst case scenario in COVID-19 just by spending $50 billion. Now, $50 billion seems like a lot of money, but the head of IMF, World Bank, the, Martin Wolf has said this, that if you spend $50 billion to, to vaccinate the world from COVID-19, the economic return to the world is $9 trillion, okay? Can you imagine that? You invest $1, you get $180 back. That's an amazing return. And, and I would say that if the world could come together and agree on that, I can confidently say that China will make its contribution and agree to spend $50 billion to save the world. So in that sense, in terms of accepting what is fair share of international responsibilities are, I'm confident that China, and I hope United States and others will also do so. Goran, let's give you a chance to respond to the question about COVID-19, China's culpability, and how, how we in the United States and the West more generally ought to respond to that. Well, first of all, let me just mention to Kishore that a weak China can be as dangerous and probably more dangerous than a strong China. But we'll put that aside for the moment. Now, on COVID-19, um, it was not just a question of China not telling the world, as Kishore said. It was China deliberately lying about this. Um, Chinese officials knew no later than the second week of December that this was human-to-human -human transmissible. And yet they admitted that this was contagious only on January 20. And by the way, they did that uh, only after a Chinese virologist um, posted some information which forced Beijing's hand. So for those five weeks, China knew what was going on. As a matter of fact, on January 3, Robert Redfield, who was the CDC director in the U.S. at the time, actually called up his China counterpart, January 3, Gao Fu, and, and asked, what about this disease? And Gao Fu said, oh, don't worry about it. It's not contagious. So this was a deliberate attempt to spread this disease because, as I mentioned, um, they were locking down in China parts of their country while they were forcing other countries, pressuring other countries not to impose travel restrictions and quarantines on the United States. 
And indeed, when President Trump did impose his measures on January 31 of last year, he took terrific incoming from China. So um, I think that we have got to put this in perspective. The reason why this is important, Josh, and, and is that this is not the last pathogen that will escape from China. And um, right now, Xi Jinping knows that uh, he's gotten away with murder. Literally 4.4 million people outside of China have died who should not have been exposed to this disease in the first place. We know that China is working on what it calls, quote, specific ethnic genetic attacks. These are pathogens that will leave the Chinese immune, but sicken and kill everybody else. China's National Defense University in 2017 wrote about these types of pathogens when it discussed a new type of biological warfare. And many other Chinese military researchers have been talking about this. So if we don't impose severe costs on China for what it did with regard to COVID-19, then um, Chinese leader Xi Jinping or his successor um, will feel that they can spread the next disease. And the next disease could actually be a civilization killer. And the civilization that is killed could very well be ours, or it could be all others other than China. So right now, we have got a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to our children and grandchildren to impose those costs on China. Because China's behavior was not just negligent. China's behavior with regard to COVID-19 was malicious. And we have to understand, China has this doctrine of unrestricted warfare. They say they don't, but they really do. And we have seen a demonstration of China's unrestricted warfare with regard to germs. All right, last question for you both. Thank you so much. This has been really, really wonderful. Um, so as I already said, my views on China are very much influenced by my personal history. I, I feel like I'm watching history repeat itself in Xinjiang, and I feel uh, very, very upset that it, it doesn't seem to be making the kinds of headlines that you know one would wish. Um, and I say all this to, to ask, you know, you both feel very passionately about this subject as well. And I'm wondering where the power of that passion comes from. Where were your views on China forged? Do you also have a personal connection to this story, to this issue? Um, let's start with you, Kishore. Well, I, I, I want to emphasize that I'm not Chinese. But, you know, I, I'm a great believer in Western science. And when Gordon says that you can create a virus or a bacteria or whatever that can kill a non-Chinese human being and not kill a Chinese human being, as far as I know, that violates the most basic rule of science, which actually shows that the human species is one and that it mustn't, all of us are the same. It doesn't matter whether we are Chinese or Indians or Africans or Latin Americans or Jews or Japanese, we are the same. So the idea you can create something that will just kill everybody else except Chinese is I think that violates the basic rules of science. And I think it's important to respect science. Now, in the case of China, uh, I have to acknowledge that Singapore's uh, population is 75% Chinese, 15% uh, Malay Muslim, 6% Indian. So I'm a, I represent a minority uh, within Singapore. 
but nonetheless, I've lived with the Chinese majority, uh, Singapore, and all I've discovered living in the multiracial Singapore, and the reason why Singapore is going to become the capital of the Asian century is because Singapore is the only city in Asia where four major civilizational streams come together and interact every day. Chinese civilization, Muslim civilization, Indian civilization, and Western civilization. And so there is a spirit of inclusiveness in Singapore. And the lesson we learn in Singapore is basically treat all human beings equally. We are all the same. Uh, and it's important that we respect each other no matter which culture we come from. And so that's that's the big lesson I learned from living in Singapore. Gordon? Kishore, you got to face reality. This is what Chinese military researchers have been saying. They've been saying this in open source. You very well may be right, but nonetheless, Chinese military researchers are working on pathogens of this sort. With regard to um, Bacho, with your question on um, where this came from, um, I would certainly like to know. Um, <laughs> when my wife and I moved to China, uh, we moved to Shanghai in August 1996. Um, I was practicing law, and my biggest client was Citibank, and we followed my client there. And I can remember my wife getting on the phone and saying, Mom, China's not communist anymore. And I certainly agreed with her. Um, and, you know, I heard my clients say the same thing because they would buzz into Shanghai. They'd stay at the Grand Hyatt, which is one of the most magnificent hotels in the world. And they would say, China's not communist anymore. And I agreed with everybody. Um, but my views changed when my wife and I actually lived in China, when we traveled around the country, spoke to people, saw things, practiced law, and saw the system. And... I just saw a very different China. And that's the reason why. Kishore may be right. I could very well be wrong on everything. Um, but uh, my views were informed by what we saw in China at a much more optimistic time and much more hopeful time than now. And now we've got to be extremely concerned about the directions that China is taking. Gordon Chang, Kishore Mabubani, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys thank both you. so much. Okay, so Gordon and Kishore have left us. We have just heard a debate on what I think is the most important topic in the world. Um, I do not say that lightly. I literally think this is the most important topic in the world. So, Badia, what did you make of this um, energetic, I would say, exchange? It was really great to hear both sides of this question. Obviously, you and I pretty much fall on one of those sides. Um, I'm not sure that... Um, Kishore was quite able to address the major questions that at least plague me when I think about the U.S.-China relationship, which is that we have so much leverage, the human rights and the civil rights abuses are so great, and that there doesn't seem to be any connection between those things in the minds of America and in the minds of the EU. There just doesn't seem to be a willingness to leverage our economic relationship with China in order to achieve something on, you know, the question of the genocide or Hong Kong. So I don't feel satisfied on that point, but I was very glad to hear how somebody who is trying to defend China would have made that point. What about you, Josh? Yeah, I think that's like a probably like a more charitable way of saying what I was hoping to say. Um, 
this is not an issue on which I am neutral. It's not an issue on which you are neutral, Badia. Um, it was really interesting, I guess, from my perspective, to have someone on who is pretty unapologetic um, in, uh, I would say, towing the Chinese Communist Party line. Um, that's what he did. Uh, uh, sure that is. Um, Gordon, of course, you know, as a regular Newsweek columnist, I, I, you know, we work together on a fairly regular basis. So it was great, great to have him on the show. And I hope the listeners um, enjoyed what was clearly a clash of viewpoints on um, the great tiger that is China. So, uh, again, you're listening to Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. Uh, please subscribe. Leave us five stars. A kind review would be much appreciated. And we hope you enjoyed this and we'll see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>